All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin or on the screen. This is from 1 Corinthians as Paul continues to instruct the Corinthian church in uh, how to live uh, as uh, followers of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. Well, a couple of days ago, I went uh, on a walk with my wife and my daughter. We have this, uh, as the weather uh, gets good, we'll have dinner and then we'll go for a walk in the neighborhood and just enjoy, uh, you know, uh, the, the beauty around us. And I did something that I had never done before. About just a couple minutes in, I uh, said to my wife, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm not going to open them until we're done with the walk. Now, why did I do this? I have absolutely no idea. But I thought, what the heck? I'm holding her hand and uh, let's try it. You know, I thought it would be one of those like corporate trust exercises or something. And so for the next 15, 20 minutes, Uh, I just held her hand and we walked and I trusted that my wife was not going to lead me into a car or a crowded street. Uh, My life was literally in her hands. And gradually, as I got used to it, I moved from fear to relaxing and enjoying uh, being led by someone else. While my eyes were closed, I didn't know the way, but I had the confidence that she did. You know, that concept, I want us to apply to the area of sexuality. There's voices that are clamoring all around us in the world. Here's 
what you need to do in order to find satisfaction. And yet God takes our hand and says, I have a plan for you. I will lead you. Will you trust me? You see, through Jesus Christ, God will provide for our needs. So we can trust him in the area of our relationships and sexuality. So we're going to look at that, trusting God, and we're going to look in three particular areas, situations, if you will, that Paul talks about in this passage. The first is for Christians who are married, uh, Christian married couples. We're also going to talk, number two, for uh, believers who are single. And finally, for uh, two categories of people, for those who are divorced or those who are married to people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus Christ, God will meet our needs so we can trust him in our relationships and sexuality. So let's look at our first point, the uh, instructions for Christian married couples. In verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now we need to categorize this. Notice what he's talking about, that the Corinthian church has written to Paul regarding some questions. Now, the first part of Corinthians has Paul been addressing things that he heard from Chloe, the household of Chloe, someone in Corinth who met with Paul, who saw Paul and shared with her uh, him of uh, things going on in the church. But Paul is now turning his attention to a letter that the actual church wrote to Paul asking for advice and counsel on specific issues. So we see that to some people in the Corinthian church, their sexual practice, it was uh, very much conforming to the culture. Um, but there are others here that are thinking that the highest life of a Christian is an ascetic life, a celibate life, that that is the highest ideal. And so they're writing Paul asking questions about that. Because there are those in the church that are believing that to be Christian is to be celibate, and indeed, that should even extend into marriage, that abstinence should be mandatory for all Christians. And it appears that in some couples, some uh, either uh, one of the spouses has bought into this and as a result are refusing to engage in sexual relations. And so it's causing a big problem. And so they write to Paul asking what are we supposed to do? What, what, what does God say about this? Now, first of all, we have to ask the question, where did they get this idea? There certainly was a, a, a philosophy back in that time that the body was bad, and anything associated with the body was to be avoided or just tolerated. But there was also this uh, creeping legalism that always wants to come into the church. It's a thinking that goes like this. If, if it's, uh, we're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, then we should extend that to not having sex at all is even better. In other words, we're going to take a particular rule and we're going to extend it thinking that it will make us even more holy. But that is actually wrong. The Bible is very clear that sex in its proper context is good. And so I'm just making this caveat that Paul is addressing a particular issue here 
Paul is not down on marriage. Paul is not communicating that marriage is simply for sex. Paul is not giving us a manual on marriage. He is addressing a particular issue that the Corinthians are asking. And so he's responding, saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, in some contexts. But verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, he's not referring to temptation as a bad thing per se. Rather, he has a realistic appraisal of humans as sexual creatures and understands that if God has joined two people together, he has joined them together in order to provide for each other's needs. And one of those needs is sexual. In other words, Paul is wanting to make sure that married couples channel their sexuality in a healthy, holy way. And he's saying that going this route, one of the partners having abstinence, you know, demanding abstinence in marriage is ripe for disaster. And so he's saying that couples should have uh, sexual relations with one another. Now, of course, there are caveats and things that, that, that go along with that, but let's continue on. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Notice it says, should give, that each spouse should recognize that God has given me to my spouse to help meet that need. Now, what's quite shocking for that time is that Paul includes women. Paul recognizes that women have sexual needs and rights as well as men. And in fact, you'll notice that throughout this chapter, Paul goes out of his way to underscore that women have the same obligations and rights as their male counterparts. Now, notice that Paul is not even, uh, uh, is not addressing the issue of children, right? There is a notion that sexuality, uh, sex is only for the creation of children. Like how many Times did your parents have sex? Well, how many kids do we have? Well, now you know the answer, right? A sex was God's idea for communion and intimacy and enjoyment for those who are married. If you don't believe this, read Song of Solomon and you will get a new perspective. Paul goes on in verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, there is a joint ownership of your body if you are married. Now, Paul does not frame this relationship in terms of the husband's rights and the wife's duties, nor does he expect the wife to submit passively as a compliant bed partner. Rather, she is an equal partner because she possesses her husband's body in the same way as he possesses hers. And so there's some conclusions that we can draw from what Paul is saying. That if you are married, that I am for my spouse, not just myself. Sex is not simply for self-gratification, but rather to meet the needs of my spouse as well. And also that love is at the foundation 
of a couple's sexual relationship. In marriage, one gives up complete self-determination and must seek to please his partner. God's plan is for each person in marriage to look away from him or herself toward the other and to entrust him or herself to the other in confidence that the other will not exploit this trust, much like me putting my hand in Leellen's as we walk the neighborhood. This sexual relationship requires mutual sensitivity, loyalty, care, and tenderness. Paul says in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying that the decision to not have sex for a period of time is a joint one by mutual consent. And he gives the caveat here so that you can devote yourselves to pray. But what's that correlation between sex and prayer? If you don't have sex, do you pray better? No, he's talking much more like fasting, the concept of fasting, taking time off something so that you can focus more on something. But neither abstinence nor fasting is a requirement for prayer. And notice he says it's for a limited time so that you will uh, not be, become susceptible to temptation. So what is all of this saying? It's saying that sex is a gift from God for those called to marriage, to experience intimacy and joy. And sex is more than physical. It's emotional and spiritual. The world would try to divorce sex from its proper context, saying you get the same results in whatever relationship you have. But that is not true. And in fact, studies prove time and time again that people, the people who are most sexually satisfied are those who are in long-term committed marriages with one another. You know, it's an accepted fact in marriage uh, uh, that uh, on average, males want sex with greater frequency than, fe- than their female counterparts. I know this might be surprising to some of you. Uh, it's actually been empirically validated. Uh, but there are exceptions. Uh, in about 20% of relationships, it's, it's opposite, that the female has a stronger sex drive than the male. So it's, it's certainly, uh, there are exceptions to the rule. And obviously, things, uh, desire flexes as age changes and their biological issues. But men and women look at sex differently in terms of their desire for it. Additionally, women are much more affected by daily circumstances and how they affect uh, their sex drive. Again, I'm speaking as a, as a rule. There are exceptions. I don't know if you've heard of the term that a, a woman has uh, two batteries. Excuse me, a man has two batteries and a woman has one. Uh, in other words, you know, when a woman is tired and, and, and it's been a hard day and so on, that, that affects her where men have an auxiliary battery, that it does not matter if they're on death's door or not, uh, if the opportunity presents itself. Again, I'm speaking on in generalities. But have you ever wondered why God set it up this way? 
I mean, why not make the sex drive of a woman and a man the exact same, right? Wouldn't that make things easier in a marriage? The reason that he set it up that way is because he wants to teach each of us about grace through the other. I am one of those people that fall in the majority category of having a higher sex drive than my wife. And I have learned over my 29 years of marriage, sacrifice, that when I desire sex before her, I must learn to put her needs above my own. I must learn to deny myself, to be patient, to look away from myself. And in the same way, the wife recognizes this man having a stronger drive and that she only has one battery, but there are times to sacrifice and give of herself to meet that particular need of her husband. See, it's back and forth, learning to put the other person in front of ourselves, serving them, not just myself. See, God is using your marriage to shape you into the likeness of Christ. He said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You must love one another. And we know that Christ loved us even more than he loved himself. And he demonstrated that by dying for his bride, the church. And so God gives us the grace that we need. If God has called you into marriage, God has provided what you need in the area of sexuality. So you must trust God's provision. The world would say you also need X and Y and Z in order to find satisfaction. But the world does not know what they are talking about. What the world offers is counterfeit. So husbands, look to meet your wife's needs above your own. And wives, look to meet your husband's needs above your own. He wants us to serve like Christ the other people, the other person in our area of sexuality. Trust, serve, and don't exploit one another. Now, there may be circumstances that are affecting you in particular, things in your past, issues that create trust issues and so on. But are you working on them for the sake of your partner? Men and women, you're God's gift to each other in the area of sexuality. Well, let's turn and look at the second group of people that Paul is talking about, believers who are single. In verses 6 through 9, he commends celibacy and singleness, but he does not make it the highest goal. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Do you know that there is circumstantial evidence to point, to suggest that Paul was, at one point in his life, quite possibly married himself? 
Remember that Paul was a Pharisee. And if you were a male, you were a Pharisee, it was normative that you would be married. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, of which it was required that you would be married. So by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, perhaps he was already a widower. Or his wife may even have left him and divorced him upon his conversion to Christ. We don't know. But what we do know is Paul knows now that he is not called to marriage. We see here that Paul says, I wish that all are as I am. Now, Paul's not on, he's not down on marriage, but rather he recognizes that because he is single, he has full time to devote in service to the Lord's ministry. Paul even talks about this a little later in verse 32. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now, God has called that person into marriage, so that's their path. But Paul is simply saying that because I uh, am not married, I have full time to devote myself to the Lord's service. He calls it a gift. But notice he qualifies the gift by saying that it isn't for all. So compelling celibacy is a big mistake. The Catholic Church, for instance, in their priests compels celibacy. We see the variety of issues that that has caused. Even the apostles were not compelled to be celibate. If God, um, so, so this gift is not for all, it's not normative. And notice that Paul uses this term gift, which has the same root that we use for grace. See, if God is in his providence calling you to a single life, he will give you the grace that you will need to find in your singleness, which will provide satisfaction and contentment and usefulness in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on in verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He's speaking to the unmarried, which also the, the Greek could mean demarried, meaning they've become single again, and those who are single because they're widowed. He's saying that to these people that you don't have a higher calling, but a different calling. That it is good, meaning that this is good what God has provided for you. That if this is your situation and God is calling you to this, that it is good to stay unmarried. As such, the church does a very bad job with singles. Looking at singles as second-class citizens, right, in this nether state. Where Paul is teaching us that we each have our calling and gifting. And I frankly love singles who are called to singleness because of the blessings that they provide to the church. But Paul qualifies this. It's good to remain single, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Could be translated, if they are not exercising control, which means they're 
having these sexual desires and they are struggling with them. Paul is offering marriage as the appropriate outlet for irresistible sexual urges rather than prescribing some morbid and futile battle to repress them. In other words, an active libido is simply a sign that celibacy is not for them. Okay, in other words, what Paul is not saying is, oh, there's something wrong with me. I need to go get married. He's simply saying that this is not the path that God has for you. Having sexual desires and wanting to get married is not a sin. See, a person cannot decide to have the gift of celibacy. It can only be bestowed by God and is not something one strives to attain. And yet there are times when you are single and not yet married. God clearly gives you the self-control that you need through the Holy Spirit. But Paul is saying if you fall in this category, you should seek to get married. Well, how do I do that, Paul? How do I make that happen? The answer is to put yourself in a position to meet someone. There's a lot of us that have this mentality of I'm just going to go on and live my life. And when God decides the time is right, it's just going to happen. That's Hollywood, my friends. That's the movies, right? If you want to get married, you need to put yourself in a position to get married. Some people say, well, when I meet the person of my dreams, then I'll be ready to get married. To which I respond, when you meet the person of your dreams, are they going to look at you and say, there's the person of my dreams? We always think about the other person, right? Rather, the question we need to ask is, what can I be working on in myself to become the person of their dreams when I meet the person of my dreams? Whether emotional or spiritual or physical. There was a gal in our congregation. She was, this is probably eight years ago, I guess. She was in her early 30s. She was single. And yet she knew that she was not called to a celibate life. She had a desire to get married. But she was just kind of waiting around for magic to happen. She wasn't doing anything. And so when I talked with Carol and uh, began to meet with her, I I said to her, describe the man of your dreams. What's he he like? What's, What's he looking for? And that led to, well, what is it that you need to be working on so when you meet the man of your dreams that he's going to look at you and say, ah, the woman of my dreams that I've been looking for. And then the next question was, are you positioning yourself? Describe the man of your dreams. What's he he like? What's, What's he looking for? And that led to, well, what is it that you need to be working on so when you meet the man of your dreams, that he's going to look at you and say, ah, the woman of my dreams that I've been looking for. And then the next question was, are you positioning yourself in the best place to meet the man of your dreams? And ultimately, this young woman realized, no, I'm not. 
and made the decision to move to be, get involved with a large PCA church that had a large community of Christian singles. Is she married? I don't know. You wanted to know, didn't you? I've lost touch. But here's the point. There's a difference between praying for rain and praying for rain and planting your fields, right? Okay, if God is calling me, there's my part to do. And then we'll see where God is going to lead me. You know, in... in, uh, uh, many cultures, uh, part of the responsibility of the pastor is matchmaker. So in Japan, for instance, where a pastor is called sensei, by the way, if you want to start calling me sensei, that would be okay, rather than pastor. That part of our responsibility is to connect young women and young men with other young women and young men or older women and older men. Really, the age doesn't matter. I guess my point is that, you know, I got friends, all right? We can talk. We can connect. The application is this. Church, we need to value our singles. Those who are called to singleness to recognize that they have a place and calling among the church and to seek to include them. And singles, if this is a gift that God has given you, If he's called you to singleness, he's called you to a high honor. So embrace it and minister. But if God is not calling you to that life, do what you need to do to put yourself in a place to respond to God's calling in a different direction. I don't know if you've heard of eHarmony. Neil Clark Warren, Christian. Okay, before there was the internet, Neil Clark Warren wrote books about this. And when he saw the internet, he's, this is a great idea. And you know what? It is a great idea, right? Get involved. There are opportunities. There are things going on. There's opportunities. So this brings me to our last point. Uh, Divorced and married to unbelievers. To the married, I give you this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Now, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's referring specifically that the Lord said this uh, specifically. Um, The wife should not divorce, uh, should not separate from her culture. Notice he says the wife should not separate from her husband. In the culture in which they live, the wife could divorce. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So Paul is giving two choices here. If a couple has divorce for what I would uh, call illegitimate reasons, there are legitimate reasons for divorce. One is adultery by the other spouse. The second, which we're going to talk about, is by desertion by an unbelieving spouse. But he's not talking about those. He's saying if you divorce for illegitimate reasons, there's two choices, to remain unmarried or to be reconciled. In fact, they really are part and parcel that Paul is directing them to remain unmarried in order to be reconciled with their husband or their spouse. In other words, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But 
Some have come to me and asked, well, what if the other person gets married? That, that, that's just not going to happen. And the answer I would give is that one flesh union has been broken. That you should go on with your life. That you can get married again. There's something you all need to understand about God's will. That God really has two wills. What do I mean by that? He has his prescriptive will and his decretive will. Okay, what's the difference? God's prescriptive will, prescriptive meaning the prescripts, the commands that God gives in his book, in the Bible, of how we are to live life. And he gives us the freedom to either obey or disobey, right? We can violate God's prescriptive laws, and we do all the time. But there is another will that God has, and it's called his decretive will. And God's decretive will is what God plans to happen and to pass, irregardless of whether we are obedient or not, irregardless of whether we or anyone in the world rebels against God or not. In other words, God's plans, his ultimate plans, cannot be thwarted. And the decisions that we make, sometimes which are the wrong decision, do not stop God's will from occurring and happening. Because God's will will always be done. And if you are a believer, God's will for you is good. And God sometimes allows things that he does not like to accomplish that which he loves. So if you have made mistakes in the past, know this, that God is for you. And there is nothing you can do that can stop God's good will from being done in your life. So God has joined together. Um, God is bigger than our choices. But notice he continues on in verse 12 and saying, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if a bro any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her, and vice versa. Now, when he says, I, not the Lord, he's not saying, you don't really have to listen to this because the Lord didn't say it. He does not believe that his commands are any less authoritative than the Lord's. Remember, he is an apostle of the Lord. He's simply communicating that the Lord did not speak specifically to this issue, but through the Holy Spirit, I am. See, there are some Corinthians under the mistaken impression that, well, I've become a Christian now, but my spouse is an unbeliever, so God is leading me to divorce them. Because in some way, by being in this relationship, I'm going to be defiled, if you will, by this unbelieving spouse. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. That this mixed marriage between an unbeliever and a believer, one who's come to faith, has the same status as a Christian marriage and should not be abandoned. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. He's actually saying that the Christian spouse sanctifies the unchristian spouse, not the other way around. That the Christian brings the non-Christian into the sphere of holiness. And the flow of influence moves in that direction. 
See, what Paul is saying that though the marriage may be less than ideal, that God can and will use it to glorify himself. And he gives this example of children. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. See, in the Old Testament, the unclean were shut out of the covenant community. They were forbidden to draw near to God and the congregation. But Paul is saying that the sanctification or the holiness of the parent flows in the direction of the child, including them in the covenant of community. That's why we baptize our children. Now, is Paul saying that one spouse, by virtue of having faith, saves the other spouse? No, he's not saying that. But he's saying the influence by you being in that kind of close, intimate relationship has powerful effects in the other person. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It can be hard if you are married to someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ and follow them like you do. But know that just as in all of these other areas of singleness, of being married, that God gives grace. And he has given you a ministry to your spouse. That God has joined you together and God knows what he is doing. As we see in these other areas, that marriage is not simply to make us happy, right? It's to grow us into the image of Jesus Christ. But there is this caveat in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so it is in the hands of the unbelieving spouse, not the believing one. So when you find, if you're in this situation, that your marriage is painful rather than joyful, when this tragic disconnect intrudes upon your unity, you are called to cling to Christ, that your unbelieving spouse will see in you that Jesus Christ is enough. Well, I need to wrap up. And so I wrap up with this conclusion. Whatever your situation, believers who are married, single for temporary, or that God has called you to this, or divorced or married to an unbeliever, Christ gives us grace to put others above ourselves, to serve others and our church, and to be content in our situation, for he will meet the needs that no one else can meet. Because of Jesus, God will provide for our needs. So let us trust him in the area of our relationships and sexuality. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you know our heart and our joys and our sorrows, and you meet us in them, and you tell us to put our hand in yours and to close our eyes and to trust your word as you lead us. And God, you promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, but you will give us your joy through the Holy Spirit. Give us courage and faith to walk in the way of faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.